As we've talked about before, the Why Jesus series is going to host a diverse set of voices, a diverse set of perspectives, a diverse set of ways of even addressing the question, Why Jesus? We hope that you'll stick with us throughout the rest of the series because you're going to get a lot of different angles. And today, just like last week we had Rajesh share, we have our very own beloved Siddhi Sundar come on up and share your response to the question, Why Jesus? Happy Sunday. So uh, my Why Jesus story actually starts in a grocery store in a strip mall in suburban New Jersey, far before faith in my life was ever really a thing. So this is Big Bazaar, formerly known as Desi Corner. And Desi Corner wasn't just any Indian store in suburban America. It was an Indian store where you went to prove your sense of self-worth. So... Growing up, my family and I would frequently go to Desi Corner just to try to pick up some amazing samosas, but we would walk out of Desi Corner with something a lot less exciting than samosas, and that was a consistent and rigorous evaluation of our self-worth and credentials. So here is uh, one example of uh, the kind of conversation that might manifest at Desi Corner. This one actually happened. Uh, it might be hard to believe. So here is a random parent at Desi Corner. So, Lakshmi, my mom, I'm a little worried about your daughter. Um, how's your day been? Random parent, you know, I heard that your daughter wasn't at summer calculus prep classes. Is that really true? Siddhi <laughs> doesn't take calc for three years, so we spent the summer doing things that we thought we could enjoy doing as a family. You know, one's philosophy should really be to stay ahead of the curve. And then in whispers, did you hear what happened with the Kumar family? Their son only took honors classes. He just didn't have the motivation to try AP. He was distracted with dancing and all that poetry writing, and now he's at a community college in Vermont. I think you mean Middlebury College, and it's actually a really amazing school with a theater. Random parent. Uh, yeah, how sad for the Kumars. I hope their son course corrects soon. Uh, and then to my mom, please guide Siddhi in the right direction. I like you and your family. I think there's a lot of potential here. But you must understand that every year your child fails to get ahead of math classes, earning potential drops by 50%, and possible drug use increases by another 50%. Uh, I don't think that's a real stat. Well, bye. I have to pick up my son from physics camp. It's very exclusive, by the way. Uh, but don't feel too sad. Siddhi can be exceptional if she puts her mind to it. She doesn't have to settle for ordinary. So this story over here uh, is something that today I can laugh about because it's outrageous, right? It's absurd. The fact that these conversations happen today between parents just blows my mind. But it actually took me many years to learn that Desi Corner was a microcosm of a much broader culture we live in today that puts so much emphasis on the need to be extraordinary all the time that it actually instilled in me a really profound sense of inadequacy and what turned into a lifelong battle with anxiety. So we live in a world today where uh, we are in a universe of evaluation and reward systems that are constantly putting us in relation to one another. And that's not new. It's not unique to parenting in upper-middle-class school districts like where I grew up. It's actually something that is so ingrained in our culture as America and our rich history of exceptionalism that it's really not that surprising that we continue to deal with this as individuals today. Uh, we have so many fairy tale success stories about how heroic and extraordinary we are 
that were uniquely virtuous, morally superior, and Lincoln even once said that uh, we are the last best hope on earth. Um, and what happens is that this exceptionalism distills into this core belief that if as individuals we're not extraordinary, well then what are we, right? From when we're first asked the question in college essays about what makes us unique, uh, we're in this universe where we're not only trying to prove to ourselves that we are extraordinary, but we're also trying to prove to everybody else that we are more extraordinary than them. And we're in a world where nothing we do is ever quite enough because it's never gonna match up to that person around us who's just a little bit more extraordinary. So my experience of feeling uh, like I was inadequate in an environment that constantly put pressure on being more and more extraordinary wasn't just something that was limited to growing up in uh, a specific town in suburban New Jersey. It actually led to uh, a really, really deep battle with anxiety that followed me across cities, uh, across jobs, uh, across countries around the world, and across sectors where I realized this is actually the kind of thing that's way more rampant than I ever thought it was, and I had no idea how to escape it. And that's really hard, right? Imagine yourself being a teenager or a young adult who's trying to figure out what your place is in the world and how you can use your gifts and talents in a unique way to mean something, to be something, and you're in this self-doubt perpetual circle that doesn't really go away. So as a storyteller and someone who really tried to make sense of the world through narrative, um, there was a point in my life where I started to seek out stories that would help me understand how do I actually feel adequate in a world that puts so much emphasis on the exact opposite. And it was that quest that actually led me on this multi-year spiritual journey that uh, resulted in Jesus. So there were lots of things that struck me when I first picked up the Bible for the first time, but the thing that struck me most, and it probably struck me most because it was the thing that I probably needed most at that point in my life, was that in this 2,000-year-old text, right, that fundamentally changed the course of human history, that's probably the greatest story that's ever been told, what we see is that God empowers super ordinary people to push his narrative forward. And it's not just passive, it's also not just a coincidence that we see again and again in our text that the people who God actively chooses are people who would have otherwise just vanished into relative obscurity over the course of human history. And it's not just that God picks ordinary people, it's also that God picks imperfect people. God picks the most unlikely candidate in Abraham, right? I mean, who would have, who would have thought? He picks Moses, who was tending sheep in a desert to lead his great nation, Israel, out of Egypt. He picks a shepherd boy, David, to be uh, a great king in Israel. He picks Mary, an ordinary woman, leading an ordinary life. And the thing that blows my mind, uh, and it did when I first read the Bible and then it continues to every day, is that God picked Jesus. If you really think about the gospel story, it is the story of God taking something utterly extraordinary, so incomprehensibly extraordinary, and then making it ordinary. Right. Jesus didn't just accept the ordinary mundane aspects of our humanity, he embraced it. He came into this earth, into a relatively obscure, unknown family. He was a carpenter. No one would have known who he actually was. And he took on the ordinariness of life with all of its brokenness and flaws, and he operated in that construct. And it didn't just happen, he chose to operate in that construct. And that, to me, uh, just blew my mind. After all, when Jesus started his ministry, people responded, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? 
The crowd's response implies Jesus didn't stand out at all. So naturally, people were shocked when he revealed a very different side of himself. They couldn't believe that such an ordinary person, a carpenter from the small village of Nazareth, the son of Mary, who was likely suspect at one point or another for conceiving out of wedlock, could preach like the prophets of old and perform miracles like superstars in the Hebrew Hall of Fame. And just like God chose ordinary people to tell his story, what we also see is that Jesus chose ordinary people to continue telling his story. His apostles were a really random bunch of tax collectors and fishermen and people who didn't have a background in theological training or weren't necessarily educated. Of all of the people in the universe who Jesus could pick to do his work, these are the people who he decided to pick, not passively, but actively. There's a hilarious fake letter that I think a lot of you might be familiar with. It's from the Jordan Management Consultants to Jesus. and it's a commentary on how someone today might evaluate Jesus' extraordinarily ordinary choices for his apostles. And here's an excerpt. You can find this online and read the whole thing if you're more interested. But the part I want to highlight is this. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have a team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. So while this is a commentary of uh, something that happened way back when, it's also a statement um, of the number of restrictions and impositions that we put on ourselves and the people around us to believe that we're actually capable of serving in this world. So when I read this story, uh, God's story in the 21st century in Silicon Valley, to know this Jesus in a time where our culture is so steeped in uh, everyone needing to be superstars, Jesus' story and God's story is refreshing, it's beautiful, it's real, and it's life-changing. It's helped me head-on tackle so many of my own insecurities and anxiety and be a more happier, grounded human being. The thing that sticks with me so much is that God didn't pick superstars to carry forth his story, and Jesus didn't pick superstars to carry forth his story, so why do we need to be superstars to carry forth our story? My answer to why Jesus is that Jesus taught me that we don't need to try to be great to actually be great. That all of the achievement and accomplishment and proving ourselves that we try to do in this world ultimately reaches a ceiling because as we can see through the history of our biblical text, God doesn't actually make any of those demands to be able to work through us. Those are demands that we put on ourselves. I read a post online from someone who had gone through a similar uh, spiritual journey and they said, In Christ, we can live meaningful, gospel-centered lives in the midst of the ordinary and the mundane. That plain truth is a relief. That's why Jesus. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, I feel like I needed to hear that, so... Thanks. Let's pray. Um, God, thanks for being the kind of God who sees us in ways that we don't even see ourselves. Thank you for people like Sidi and the testimony and the life that they bring to this community and to the world. And we delight and rejoice and are humbled by the fact that your kingdom advances through people like us. So we humble ourselves intentionally that you would simply do 
and be and work in and through us however you so desire and please. And we bless and honor you. Thank you for loving us in that way. In your name, everybody said, amen. amen. When, I, <laughs> when I read Sithi's, uh, I got a preview of it, um, it reminded me of a meme that somebody sent me not too long ago because I don't know if you know this, but theologians and people in the ministry fall into the exact same trap, the temptation to be spectacular. But uh, somebody sent this to me and I thought it was really appropriate. And Jesus said unto the theologians, who do you say that I am? They replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma of which we find the ultimate meaning in our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? So, welcome to Spark. <laughs> Last week, I shared with you um, some reflections that I wanted to propose regarding the free market society, uh, the free market of religion, and I just wanted to remind you as we go through this series, as with everything with Spark, what happens um, here is both a sermon and a talk um, and a public expression of a working out of some ideas that sometimes the presenter doesn't always have well formulated. And last week, um, I got a comment that I thought was absolutely wonderful uh, who said something along the lines, but, but why is shopping bad? And why is sorting bad? Isn't that an inevitability? And we had a wonderful conversation about that. I say that to remind you, if you are here in a part of our congregation, what happens from this place is not the end of what we believe, it's hopefully the beginning of a further advanced conversation. But you may disagree, you come with a perspective, you come with education uh, and ideas that are going to be really helpful for shaping all of us. So please do not be shy in wrestling publicly with me, with Danielle, with any of the pastors, and with yourselves, with each other in your small groups. Um, And I know that some small groups actually take advantage of the sermon time to actually spark those conversations. And I just want to encourage you and remind you, our job is to create the conditions, the culture in which your mind and your soul and your spirit can be pushed forward and you get to contribute to all of that shaping and forming. Today is going to be very similar. Uh, In fact, um, somebody was sharing, I try to say somebody because I don't want to embarrass people in public, but somebody very dear to our community here saw the title of the sermon, Athens in Jerusalem, and was going to be really curious what I was going to say because in previous years, I've talked extensively about Hellenism being contrary to the movement of Jesus, Hellenism being the idea Uh, the fleshing out of Greek culture, Greek language, Greek ways of thinking and philosophy. And it struck me that for years I've been teaching one thing, and what I'm going to present to you today is going to be in virtual contradiction to the things that I've taught in the past. Um, There will be some overlap of agreement, but there's some things I was like, yeah, I think I've changed my mind a little bit in some areas. So, If you've been around Spark or been to Israel with Danielle and I, you've heard particular teachings, welcome welcome to Spark, because this is going to be a wrestling out of ideas and thoughts and reflections, and I hope that you know that that never stops. The whole goal is not to find what you believe, stick your stake in the ground, and never budge from it. The goal is to grab the next rung on the ladder and say, okay, I think that's a good rung, Now, what's the next one? And maybe I will see something new in new light as I reach to new heights. 
that's the goal and that's the hope and that's why we're here is because there's always more to learn and to discover. So I hope that you'll join our journey. Are you with me? Whoa, I love it. This is what we may believe is the very first depiction of the apostle Paul on the left side there, on the right, excuse me, on the right, the right side. And then on the left side, the later mosaic, which is now used to describe, to depict this um, predominant person from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who wrote approximately uh, one-third to a half of the New Testament, uh, very well known as being the founder of Christianity. Remember, Jesus started a movement called The Way. Paul pushed that movement in as it became Christianity. And we have in an ancient text called the Acts of Paul a description of who this person is. It is the only physical description of Paul that we have, and it says this. And he saw Paul coming, a man of little stature, thin hair upon the head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body with eyebrows joining and nose somewhat hooked, full of grace. (laughs) For sometimes he appeared like a man and sometimes he had the face of an angel. And this is really hilarious um, and, you know, a balding unibrowed, crooked leg, bow leg, crooked nosed man is like the, the image and the picture of the person that we, we have. The only description that we have is somebody who essentially went into the Greco-Roman world and spread Christianity. It was a really kind of an, incre- an incredible description. And then we realized that actually Paul recognizes this himself because in having a conversation with the Corinthians, he gets word back that people are talking about his physical appearance. And, and he says, oh, I know you guys say that his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he is unimpressive. So Paul's like, haters gonna hate, I get it, I totally understand. <laughs> now the reason why that's important is, I think it kind of dovetails a little bit into what Siddy was saying as well. Um, unimpressive, perhaps had a cackly voice. I mean, you can imagine just how unassuming of a physical presence this person is. And he has a transformational experience with the person of Jesus. You can read about it in the book of Acts in your Bible about his experience with the light and a voice and he doesn't even know who this person is and he becomes essentially a father of Jesus, an apostle, and he begins to become the preeminent person who spreads this movement, this religion, into not just the rest of Jerusalem and Israel, but into this particular world. This is a picture, of course, of the Parthenon in Athens. And if you've ever been there, even to this day, it is impressive. And there are portions of the Israel trip that we go on, and portions of uh, Italy, uh, Turkey, Ephesus, Greece, Athens, all of these places, if you go there, even to this day, these buildings are impressive. They are astounding. 2,000, 3,000 years ago, they are lifting stones that weigh three, 4,000 pounds up on pillars. So I'm like, how in the world did they do this engineering-wise? The place of Athens, um, in short, there's a whole bunch to say here, but in short becomes an image and a picture of a cultural movement that happened in the ancient world that I do not think can, one, be overstated just how impactful on the world the movement of Greek thinking into the world was. Um, Number two, um, just how radical Paul was in facing this world. I mean, 
What Athens did, what Greek ideas, what Hellenism did to the world, we are still inheritors of to this particular day. Anybody take biology? Anybody uh, study calisthenics? Anybody do anything in the world? Science and technology? I mean, we have our grounding in the Greeks. I don't think it can be overstated. And Paul goes into this particular world to spread the message of an ordinary person named Jesus and transforms it. It's really... Like, when you think about it historically, this is an incredible move in the ancient world that we are still um, experiencing to this particular day. And the story that is told in our scriptures is that this unassuming, bald-headed, unibrowed, bow-legged, short man goes in and starts seeing statues like this, which clearly, you know, was... Never mind. (laughs) So... Paul even talks about in the, in, the, in the book of Acts about how he sees all of this development, all this technology, all of this advanced culture. And the reason why, I, don't, I mean, we could spend hours and hours and hours, and many of you do actually at university, just simply studying what happened in the ancient Greek world, the Hellenism that happened. Zeus becomes the preeminent god. There's a lot of discussion about monotheism even within the Greek culture because of Zeus and the predominance of power and of strength. Um, And then you have people all throughout the history of Greek that develop things that we, again, are still inheritors of today. Cleisthenes, um, after losing an incredible battle um, around the 7th, 8th century BC, becomes a leader of the people and begins to institute an entirely new kind of government for the people, not for the aristocracy, not for the imperial elites, but for the people. And the ancient Greeks understood this as a democratization of power. So the very founding of democracy itself, in fact, there's tomes written on the development of democracy, the idea that people, regular people, have power and have a voice and should have a place within society, probably goes back to Cleisthenes. We have Democritus, one of the earliest philosophers, who realized that if you cut up a chair, it gets into smaller and smaller pieces, but it's no longer a chair. And what if you cut up those pieces even smaller and smaller and smaller? And what if you cut up those pieces even smaller? Pretty soon you get down to a thing that is not divisible. In Greek, a tom, an atom that is indivisible. He's like the founder of physics, like, like quantum physics, way back then, thinking through what are the things that we can understand about how those things work. And those atoms, those things that are indivisible, are essentially the, the, the substance, the stuff of this entire world. We have Protagoras, who most likely developed the idea of humanism, that man is the measure of what is and what is not. You and I get to decide what is beautiful, what is aesthetic, what is real, what is true. You have Hippocrates, who is the founder of medicine and taking a look at our bodies, how they work, and developing not just a biological approach to how medicine should be done, but also an an ethical approach. And of course, today, if you go into medicine, you are going to take the Hippocratic Oath. And then, of course, and I'm so sorry I have to do this, but I have to do this because it's like the best movie ever. You have the three most predominant philosophers in the world. Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Really? Uh, 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 Of course, Vicini from Sicily deserves his place in in the pantheon of all the philosophers. This could go on and on and on and on and on. 
And when Alexander the Great conquered the ancient world, um, beginning in around 333, 356 he's born, by 333 he makes his way to Palestine. Um, we have the city of Alexandria in Egypt, we have the city of Kandahar in India, uh, named after him. I mean, he becomes this predominant figure. That's the, there's a reason why he's called Alexander the Great. He spreads this all over the world. And of course, this is the context into which this guy brings a message about a ordinary nobody from the backwoods of Galilee that is even looked down upon by other Israelites as a place where no good things could ever come from. No, nobody any intelligence would ever come from here. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I apologize about this. I, I heard, once heard a pastor say, and he's from Kentucky, so he's got that southern drawl. He says, as soon as I open my mouth, people deduct 20 IQ points, right? That, and that was him saying this. Now, I, that's obviously not true, but it's that idea that you look down upon people. I mean, this is, this is a little bit of where he comes from, that message. And the question is, what in the world or how in the world did this movement of Jesus ever make its way into Athens? How in the world did the, the way of Jesus, which was about love and community and covenant and relationship, monotheism rather than pantheism, all of these ideas. How in the world did that interrupt and in many ways displace, transform this ancient Greek world? It, I mean, just purely from historical sociological standpoint, this is truly astounding. There is another question that emerges on the scene when Christians today read this history and think about the past. And it is this. And it's formulated in the question that was made famous by the guy, a guy by the name of Tertullian. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? That's his famous line. And the general idea here is that we actually not only will influence Athens, we don't need Athens. We don't need science we don't need poetry, we don't need literature, we don't need the theater, we don't need the gymnasium, we don't need any of that stuff because we have Jesus. And if you read Tertullian's question in context, it's really fascinating how much disdain he has for this Greek way of thinking. Away with all attempts to produce a model Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus. No inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief. For this is our palmary faith, that there is nothing with which, there is nothing which we ought to believe besides. That's a little bit confusing, so I made a translation for you. This is my translation. Away with all attempts to produce a compromised Christianity tainted with Greek thinking. We don't want to be challenged once we have come to know Christ Jesus. There is no further questioning after we have come to believe. Our journey in faith is to reject all else. I don't know about you. I hear this still today. I hear that because of what we believe about Jesus or because of the truth of the Bible or because of my faith, science, study, all of that stuff is unimportant. And that to me seems to be the crux of the question because we're living in very similar times, and I would actually like to ask the question, is that what Paul and the Jesus movement ultimately were about? 
when they went into this ancient world, did they ultimately go in to displace and to disdain Athens, or did they do something radically different? A kind of movement into that world that is still lost on us today that I think we could possibly learn from. So I'm gonna, again, here's my caveat, I'm gonna make a proposal, here are my thoughts, that are contradictory to things that I've taught in the past, and I want you to help wrestle with this together. Richard Tarnas, in his brilliant book, The Passion of the Western Mind, writes this about the ancient Greek world. After spending virtually 20 to 30% of his book just on the Greek world, he writes this. In the course of the unsettled Hellenistic era, Hellenistic just simply means the era of the Greeks, something like a spiritual crisis appears to have arisen in the culture. Its members impelled by newly conscious needs for personal significance in the cosmos and personal knowledge of life's meaning. This is gonna take some digging deeper, but all of those old, white, dead Greek guys that I just put up there, they had brilliant ideas, brilliant philosophies, brilliant insights to how this world worked that we, again, have inherited. But there was this, there was something not there. As democracy began to grow, there was also stratification of the social structure. Certain groups of people, certain tiers of people had the power to vote, and other people, specifically slaves, barbarians, women, did not. There was a stratification. Even with the development of medicine, there was still this attachment to whether or not you did something wrong uh, and that caused your malady. And so there was sometimes shame and guilt induced. There was all sorts of other philosophical things that came with all of these technological and scientific advancements. And so when Christianity comes into the scene, it's starting to meet something like this. As advanced as the ancient Hellenistic world was, there seems to have been something fundamentally missing, something fundamentally not fulfilling with all of the advancements that were happening. And he goes on to write, Richard Tarnas, the barbarians, for their part, did two remarkable things. They converted to Christianity while they simultaneously set about the enormous task of learning and integrating the rich intellectual heritage of the classical culture they had just conquered. This is an incredible statement. For what seems to have happened in the first century with Jesus and with Paul and the movement of Christianity is not a going in to look at the culture and saying how evil and corrupt that did happen sometimes. So that wasn't the fundamental message. But the fundamental movement was to go into the culture and see where was the God of Israel revealing God's self in that way. Let me give you a couple examples of this. In Acts chapter 17, and by the way, this is going to be a little bit of a repeat and review of what Pastor Omer shared back in our Acts series. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way, for as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. And notice this, this is really brilliant. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. In other words, the thing that you are already doing is pointing or is evidence of something that I want to tell you about, something that you yourselves are even blind to, and I think I might have some insights into who or what that is. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. I love that phrase, groping. In other words, all of the developments of philosophy, of technology, of science, and the advancement of the Hellenistic world were groping for something, constantly reaching for something. And what Paul seems to be doing here is helping the Athenians, the ancient Greeks, understand what it is that they were groping for to bring that fulfillment to them. And then he says this, which, to, I mean, for years and years in this, this still astounds me. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And for those of you who study this, you know that this isn't a quote from the Bible. This is a quote from Eratus, a, a reference to the person of Zeus. This is in the ancient Greek culture. In him we live and move and have our being. It is in Zeus that we live and move and have our being. And Paul is saying, no, no, that's, that's actually referring to Jesus. And he's using that same phraseology that they know, and in some ways pointing to Zeus and saying, the thing behind Zeus that you're actually really pointing to is this person, Jesus. And then the phrase, for we too are his offspring, is a poet, Epibendides, a hymn also to Zeus. And so this, I cannot get over this passage. For years and years, I still can't get over it to this day. It feels like what Paul is doing in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17 is taking a look at everything that's going around and saying, I see what you're doing. I understand what you're doing. But trained as a Hebrew prophet, trained as a Hebrew philosopher himself, trained as somebody who can see past the facade of what we do, what we put up, trained as somebody steeped in narrative and story and history, he was saying to them, the thing behind the thing that you are worshiping is really Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yh, is the God of Israel, and I want to share this God with you. You're groping, you're grasping, you're reaching for something, and I want you to know it. Now, is this unique to Paul? The answer is no, of course not. We should know that Paul is falling in line, and this is why the series is named Why Jesus, with a previous rabbi who did something very similar that he doesn't always get credit for. In an article entitled Jesus' Reference to Folklore and Historical Events, written by a brilliant scholar, <laughs> published in Jerusalem Perspective, <laughs> this brilliant scholar writes this. When speaking to a diverse crowd, Jesus referenced familiar non-religious sources without separating himself from the Jewish root of his teaching and person. Jesus' use of non-religious sources, particularly Greek folklore, akin to Aesop's fables, would have been appropriate for both himself and his audience's cultural and linguistic context. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, Jesus says in Matthew 7. Did you know that that was an Aesop fable? 
Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, Luke chapter 4, in speaking with the Nazareans in the synagogue where he's reading from the, from the scroll when they're having that dialogue. Did you know that that was an Aesop fable, the frog and the fox? Jesus quoted Aesop fables as part of his teaching, as part of the advancement of the Yahwistic movement from the Old Testament? Yes. In the theater, the Greek theater, there were these people called hupokrites. They would put on masks behind stage, come out as one person, go backstage, put on a different mask, and come out as a different person. And there were these ancient uh, writings from the ancient Jews and the religious people at that time that said because of the things that happened at the theater, you would never, ever, ever go there. In fact, there's this one phrase um, from the Talmud that comes later that says, cursed is the man whose shadow ever darkens the door of a theater. So there's this disdain against this Greek Hellenistic way of portraying, of course, Hellenistic philosophy, sexuality, morals, mores, ideas, and ideals of the Greek people. I mean, this would be anathema. This would be horrid to anybody who was a religious person, specifically a Jewish person who was trying to follow Yahweh. You guys know the phrase hypocrites, don't you? And you know who used it, right? And in fact, if you take a look at the history, from what I can tell, somebody check me on this, but it appears that Jesus may have been the only rabbi in the ancient world to use a theater term in his teachings. So he's appropriating somehow the Greek culture to communicate something about himself or communicate about his message. And then, of course, you all may know the famous discussion that he's having with the religious leaders of the day about should we pay taxes, tithes, tributes. There's all sorts of different possible translations for that phrase in, in, in the Gospel of Mark and Luke. And Jesus, they're, they're trying to trap him. Like, this is clearly an image is on this coin, and we are forbidden to handle images, and we, we shouldn't be handling this, right? And Caesar claims to be God, and we shouldn't be a part of that, Jesus, but we have to pay our taxes. Should we do that? And Jesus says to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's, which is brilliantly poetic and irritatingly ambiguous. It's like, what the heck do you mean, right? And of course, they were utterly amazed at him. And somehow in that phrase, you have this flexibility of interpretation. Maybe it is okay to be paying taxes because there's a culture or a system of which we are part of. But don't ever let the cultural system of which you're a part of ever invade or compromise your true and ultimate identity and who God has made you to be. Is that a possible interpretation? Sure. So, in Paul and in Jesus, what I'm beginning to see is not the conflict that oftentimes we purport. Back to Tertullian's question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? It's kind of the question of how do Athens and Jerusalem hold hands? How do they work together? And Paul, when he moves into the Athenian world, into the Greek world, seems to understand that even there, God has been moving and working. And there's something there that we can know and understand. And of course, all of that has been grounded in the person and the work of Jesus, trying to bring this together. Many of you know that when Jesus is crucified on the cross, the phrase that is written above there is written in both Latin, well, both, three, Latin, 
Hebrew, and Greek. All three languages to describe this conflation of cultures. There's a lot of different ways in which this could be fleshed out. It appears as if there's complete validity in the cultural push. Science, we have the attempt to know. Science is a beautiful tool for us to understand and to know better. We've used science to discover history and archaeology and biology and physics. It's really, really brilliant. But in faith, we have the piece of being known. Science cannot give you that sense. There is something that is necessary to come along the attempt to know. And that is the piece of being known by the creator of the universe. In order to do all of our work, we have to work with facts. But that's not how we live. We don't live with facts. We live with stories. And so part of the reason why the Jesus movement is so brilliant is it brings story to our reality. And progress absolutely makes life better. I once heard N.T. Wright say that I would not want to go to a postmodern dentist, somebody who just decides what happens to be true in the moment. So progress does make life better. Our life is better as a result of our scientific and technological advances, but it's covenant and relationship and connection that make life meaningful. And honestly, progress can't do that. It seems and appears to me that this Athens of the ancient world is actually not too far distant from us. And I started thinking about the world in which we live and the people in our church, in our community, and the places in which you live. There's this huge, huge advancements, literally world-changing companies right in our backyard. And not just in technology, but the Hellenistic Greek world also had education, they had culture, they had sports. You, I mean, everything that we take for granted today essentially had its origins with the Greeks. And with these thousands and thousands of points and vectors of influence around the world, it appears to me that just like Paul went into Athens, kind of the epicenter of cosmopolitan and cultural influence around the world, oh my goodness, it feels as if we too are at the epicenter of this cultural influence around the world. And it pains me sometimes to think that faith and science and technology and religion, metaphysics, um, and all of the stuff that we swim in are so separated from one another. They're in separate compartments. Um, Work life is different from my faith life. Um, What I do in the lab is very different from what I do in the church. And there is a part of me that looks back at Paul and Jesus and this understanding of the cultural context in which they were living, and you could go to multiple examples. Um, I I mean, things are flooding to my... You you all know the greatest commandment that we just said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? And if you read that in the New Testament, it's not three, heart, soul, strength. It is heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because the Greek language needs a fourth category that the Hebrew language already includes. And so virtually everywhere throughout the New Testament, you are seeing influences of that Hellenistic culture played out. It's the stage in which this movement was played out. And it just goes on and on and on. So my proposal, my thought, my, my suggestion for us to, to consider is that it is time again for the remarriage of Athens and Jerusalem, a sense of sense and soul, of science and spirit, of history and experience. And that a church a religious institution like ours, 
a place where people come together, you can be celebrated for the fullness of your humanity in this place. When we first started about a year ago, we did a seminar with our good friend, Dr. Kenneth Gibbs, and we did a whole seminar on evolution and Genesis. And there was somebody who walked through the doors, and I don't know who this person is. I don't think they've ever been back, but I remember hearing the story where she was in tears watching this presentation. She says, I am an evolutionary biologist and I am a Christian. And when I'm at church, I can't be an evolutionary biologist. And when I am at the lab, I can't be a Christian. And to be in a space where the two could cohabitate was a gift. And I remember thinking we could shut down the church and and we'd be done. That was a beautiful moment of bringing our worlds together. And that's part of the reason why the shaping of who we are is kind of how it has become. Some of you have made comments about the the thoughtfulness and the intellectualness or the study and the history of what we do at Spark. And I that that I hope that is true and we are going to continue to do this, but not at the disdain of the spirit and of the music and of the community. All of it goes together. This is why we are trying to do something different where all of it can come together. Jonathan Sachs, in his brilliant book, The Great Partnership, writes this. The West owes its developments to two cultures, ancient Greece and ancient Israel, Hellenism and Hebraism, the heritages, respectively, of Athens and Jerusalem. They were the first two cultures to make the break with myth, but they did so in very different ways, the Greeks by philosophy and reason and the Jews by monotheism and revelation. Religion and science, the heritages respective of Jerusalem and Athens, produced the twin hemispheres of the human brain, must now join together to protect the world that has been entrusted to our safekeeping, honoring our covenant with nature and nature's God. The God who is the music beneath the noise, the being at the heart of being, whose still small voice we can still hear if we learn to create a silence in the soul, the God, who whether or not we have faith in him, never loses faith in us. The great partnership of the two, and I hope that we can do this here. I think the last word should be given to the gospel writers, and we'll end here. The very end of Jesus' life, he's crucified, resurrected, and of course, many of you know the story of Doubting Thomas. But I think what he says here is really fascinating in light of this conflation of these two worlds. And given that it's also in the gospel according to John, which is one of the most Greek sounding and feeling of the gospel accounts, this to me makes perfect sense why it's here. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A true empiricist. I need evidence. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Do not have lack of faithfulness, but have faithfulness. And Thomas's reply here, I think, is oversimplified in a lot of circles. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas's reply is not, it is verified. I can now 
published this report in Jerusalem Journal of the Study of Resurrection or whatever. The response to that empirical moment was to say, my Lord and my God. A covenantal relationship of entering back into the movement and saying, I see, I get it. There's something bigger here than just the verification of facts. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And so I find in this particular story of Thomas, this marriage, this beautiful marriage of empiricism, science, laboratory, and faith, and discovery, and story, and narrative, and finding myself drawn into the meaning of the movement of Jesus. And I hope that we can do that together too. So my second response to you of why Jesus is in a world in which certain circles completely reject anything about faith and religion and mysticism and story and other circles that completely reject biology and physics and chemistry in a world where those movements tend to happen, I find in the movement of Jesus, the entire world has been created by God. And whether we find truth and beauty in the story or in the test tube, we give glory and honor to God and we recognize and see who this God is. And that to me is really, really beautiful. And I hope it also speaks to not only you, but to the world. We've talked extensively about the developments of Silicon Valley and the, and the unintended consequences of what that reaps on our humanity and our soul and our spirit. And what would it be if we, in all of your places of work in life, could bring the marriage of those two together again? The marriage of sense and of soul, of study and of story, so that you can pursue this brilliant world through your work and to know that you have the deepest sense of significance and meaning in who God has created you to be? What if those two could live together? And what if we could create a community in which all of that is celebrated and welcomed? We're going to take communion together, and I hope that as you do, you find that the table is maybe a symbolic place where you could ask God in your journey and in your faith that everything, the fullness of your life can come together in that way. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing, I'm going to invite you to the table. All truly are welcomed. And in addition to that, all of who you are is truly welcomed. Both who you were and are at work, who you are at church, who you are in your family, the fullness of who you are is welcomed at this table and celebrated because all of who you are has been created in the image and likeness of this God.